Good morning, everyone. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. We have a group of guests with us, an entire soccer team from Cairn University. Glad to welcome them today. You can go online and see their schedule and feel free to drop by and see a game. Coach Christina O'Connell, she and her husband Jason attend here, so pray for them. We also want to welcome one of our missionaries with us today. Tori Wynn is home for two weeks from the Canary Islands. Tori, would you stand for a moment? Let's welcome her. If, if you'll see in the current that she's only here for two weeks. She'll be at the table out back after both services, so if you'd like to meet her or find out more about her or get together at some point, um, please let her know. A couple other things just real quick. First of all, um, next Sunday, the 26th, we have what we call Group Connect, which means if you've been interested or try to figure out whether you want to get into a small group, Group Connect is an opportunity to find out. There's going to be all kinds of leaders and options to find out. There'll be tables out there, and also be sure to come with that attention. Also, for those of you who may have lost a loved one or know someone who has lost a loved one, we're beginning another session of our ministry called Grief Share that Jim and Kathy Patoka run. That starts this Thursday night um, from 7 to 9 p.m. So be praying. There's a lot of people who are grieving from the loss of loved ones, and that's been an outstanding ministry. Also, next Sunday, we have several great things coming up. We have a baptism, so be praying for those who are going to publicly show their faith in Christ. And then we also have a church picnic. So be sure to plan to stay for our picnic. There will be tents out there for those of you that don't want to be out in the sun all day. And then today at 11, just want to remind you, those of you, I mentioned suicide last week. That's a question that a lot of Christians have, even non-Christians have questions about. So we hold what we call crosstalks. At 11 o'clock, Dr. Jeff Black, the head of counseling at Cairn University, will be leading a forum on suicide and a discussion about that. So be sure to stick around if you have time. Also, if you're able to work with our children, Today at 11 a.m. we have another kids safe thing. Don't forget to look at the women's studies. And by the way, this was not designed to be birdcage liner. This was designed for you to read that. We, we give these out. So there's a lot of stuff in here about the church, especially if you're visiting with us. All right. Now, at this time, our ushers are um, going to come. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to welcome those of you who are visiting with us. We teach from the Bible. We believe the Bible is the word of God. Frequently, people will say, wow, I learned more today than I have in a lifetime, not because we're doing anything extraordinarily profound. It's just that not a lot of churches today teach right from the Bible. There's plenty that do, but there's an awful lot more that don't. And so this might be new for you, but we encourage you to start reading the Bible. The Bible says it's the word of God. We believe it is. And so there's two ways that we study the Bible here. Sometimes we'll go verse by verse through a book. That's what we primarily do. But from time to time, we'll say, let's take some topics of which the Bible calls them doctrines, okay? The Bible talks about having healthy biblical doctrine. One of Satan's favorite ways to destroy churches and Christians is with false doctrine, getting people to believe things that aren't true and twisting the Bible to prove that. So traditionally in the history of the church, Christians have put together a core of their beliefs. We call this our, our doctrinal statement or our theology, and there's what we call major doctrines, these ones about which if you don't believe them, you're not a Christian, okay? So, for example, if someone says, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the Trinity, that's a major doctrine. If you say, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe Jesus is the only way, then you're not a Christian. But there are what we call minor doctrines as well, and these are doctrines that don't necessarily 
alter the core doctrines. So your view about whether tongues is for today or, or your view about the future. Christians differ on some of these minor things, but we want to make sure that all of us know what the Bible teaches. You ought to be able, Christians are supposed to be informed people. The Bible says, as you have put your faith in Christ, to grow in knowledge. And one of the things that God says we're supposed to do is, as a whole body, Ephesians 4, says we grow together in unity and knowledge of the Son of God. So I encourage you to bring a notebook, bring a pen, bring, bring a Bible. And this morning we've been looking uh, for the last, last week and this week at our subject of back to the future. What does the Bible teach about the future? By the way, hey, Brian, could you send those notes back up? Um, if if uh, Mike could bring them up, I appreciate it. All right, so let me start with this. Um, last week we said at least Christians, you ought to have a sense. This isn't just for preachers, this is for everybody. What does the Bible teach about the intermediate existence of the dead? Thank you so much. So you know from last week, we talked about that. You, you can't just go, I don't know what happens when we die. The Bible teaches what happens when we die. And if you weren't here for that, a lot of people have commented that that clarified some questions that they had. So be sure to take a look at that. But then we're going to talk about today the Great Tribulation. Let me just get these back in order. So the Great Tribulation, in other words, you can't just up your head and say, I don't know nothing about that, but Christians are supposed to know something about that. The Bible talks about it. What do you know about the rapture? You're like, a rapture? I saw some guy had a bumper sticker about a rapture. Return of Christ, resurrections, judgments, rewards. Do people go to hell? What are rewards and crowns? What's the millennium? Are we going to float around in the sky or are we going to be in a new heaven and a new earth? So strap on your gospel mind and heart and let's grow together as we study these things. Father, thanks for your word, and I pray that as a church we will continue to be blessed and grow together through the spirit of God's work in our hearts, changing us, saving people, growing us, and giving us a hope about what's coming in the future. Thank you that we, we have not been left to speculate about the future, but we have some clear things that the word of God teaches. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's begin this morning by asking, what is the tribulation? We'll start with this. The Bible definitely speaks about a time called the tribulation. And there are a number of passages. It's not always called the tribulation, but there are at least two key passages that speak about this terrible time of suffering like the world has never seen. And you go, wow, we've had some pretty ugly things, World War I, World War II. But what does the Bible teach about that? Well, in the book of Daniel, Daniel made some prophetic predictions about a distant future from his day, and one of those predictions was this. He said, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guards over the sons of your people, will arise. Now, Michael's the, the archangel Michael, but look what it says. And there will be a time of distress such has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time... Your people, now for Daniel, he would have understood that as the Jewish people. At that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And of course, there's lots of questions. What do you mean rescued? Rescued from what? What book? But notice how he associates this time, apparently, with a, a soon following resurrection. Because he says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, to others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So at least in Daniel, he says, there's going to come a time in the future. It's going to be ugly, terrible. And then there's going to be a resurrection. So a natural reading of that would be, wow, it sounds like right near the end of the world, 
Something horrible is going to happen. Well, in the New Testament, as, as we know, the, the Bible progressively unfolds God's truth. When Jesus was near the end of his life, if you're familiar with the Gospels, in Matthew 24 and 25, we have what's called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus gives two whole chapters about prophecy and what's going to happen in the future. And one of the things that Jesus is answering, the, the disciples said to him, hey, what's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so we're not going to read that whole chapter, but you can. I want to encourage you to know Matthew 24. In that chapter, Jesus said this. As he described these events in the future from his point of view, he said, then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of time until now, okay? So it couldn't have happened before Jesus' day. And then he says, nor ever shall be. So whatever, whatever this is, it's unprecedented. Nothing shall ever happen worse than this. In fact, he said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. So, so when Christians say, I don't believe in the tribulation, I go, please, please don't say that. You might have a different view about the tribulation, but you can't say, if you're a Christian, I don't believe in the tribulation because Jesus believed in the tribulation, right? He said there's going to be a great tribulation. But the question is, what did he mean by that? Is there a way to identify what he was talking about and when it's going to take place and how long it will last? Well, again, that's why I encourage some of you to write these things down. You can go back online and listen to it, but if you take some notes and jot down these verses, you won't be going, hey, what was that verse again? So not scolding you, I'm just encouraging you to write these things down because the Bible says we're supposed to be teaching others, right? These aren't just for pastors. You can go home and share these with other people and feel free to invite them. People from Protestant, Roman Catholic, atheist, non invite them to come study with us. Give them a Bible. We mailed a Bible to somebody that we met when we were down in Ocean City um, this summer and just got a letter back from her. Thanks for the Bible. I actually went out and bought one. So you just never know. You're, you're just putting people onto the Word of God. So what do we know about this tribulation? Well, it's interesting because throughout the history of the church, not all Christians have agreed on what Jesus meant by this great tribulation. And there's actually probably four different ways that people have interpreted passages about the, the tribulation, okay? The first view is called the historicist view, then the preterist view, idealist view, futurist view. Now, I'm not trying to overcomplicate this. What I want you to do is just think about the fact that it's helpful for us to look back and say, what have Christians said about this subject in the history of the church, right? Because it would be rather pompous for us to go, I don't care what anybody else said. I just want to know what the Bible said. As though the Holy Spirit can only teach us and he doesn't use others. So the first view, the historicist view, is a pretty common view that was held by a lot of people in the history of the church. Men like Calvin, Luther, back before that. And that was basically that, this, that much of the prophetic passages in the Bible, like the book of Revelation, for the most part, and including the tribulation, that the whole church age is the tribulation, okay? And there are different ways of looking at this, but a common historist view, and this was a very popular view for many, many hundreds of years, was that the tribulation was a specific period of time in, in the church age that probably lasted a couple hundred years, and they identify it with certain popes and so forth. So that's just how many Christians have understood this, right? That, that these things are not specific events. The second one is the preterist view. Now, the preterist view comes from a word that, a Latin word that 
means something like already happened or a past tense. So the preterist view is that when Jesus spoke of the tribulation, he was talking about something that was going to happen in his generation. And so from his standpoint, it was future. But from our standpoint, the tribulation's over. It already happened, right? It happened in the first century. And most preterists would identify the tribulation with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So remember, when Jesus was on earth in 30 A.D. or so, right, he said there's going to come a great tribulation such as the world has never seen. But in the Gospels, when he described that, we know from history that in 70 A.D., a lot of things that he seemed to be speaking about happened. Here's an example. Luke 21 is a parallel to Matthew 24, where Jesus spoke of the Great Tribulation. But look what Luke says. Jesus is talking about the future. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Now, some Christians would say, oh, this is in the last days at the Battle of Armageddon. But preterists would go, no, this happened in 70 AD. It says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter the city, because these are the, the days of vengeance. So God was judging Jerusalem. Now, don't miss this next phrase. In order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. So preterists are going, God had promised that he was going to destroy Jerusalem. And Jesus was speaking about 70 AD. And you can look that up in any history book. This isn't like some fantasy. All history books will tell you about this devastating destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. And Jesus said, woe to them. And, and then he said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, which is what happened till the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And again, we've got lots more questions. What's the times of the Gentiles? We can't answer all of them at once. But just know, some people think there's no specific tribulation. It's just it was something happened in history. Some people think it already happened. The third view is called the idealist view. Now, this is often held by liberal scholars, but, but there are some evangelical Bible-believing Christians who believe that all of these prophetic passages in the Bible, like the book of Revelation, is not intended to be taken about one literal event, right? But rather, these are timeless truths about God and his church that can be applied in all generations. So when Jesus said there will be a great tribulation, they would say, don't try to think of one specific time, but throughout the history of the church, there have been many great tribulations. Now, again, I'm not saying I agree with that, but we ought to be exposed to the different views. And then probably the one that most of you are familiar with, but ironically is a very new view, is called the futurist view. And this view was not really held by many Christians in the history of the church. This view did not really become popular until somewhere in the 1600s where people began to look at the book of Revelation as, okay, this stuff hasn't happened yet. This is all in the future. Okay, that doesn't make it right or wrong. It just is something to, to, to think about. So futurists, particularly if you've heard of dispensationalists, Dallas Theological Seminary, this is by far probably the most popular evangelical view. You're like, I already read Tim LaHaye. I know everything about this stuff. I'm like, no, you probably, you probably don't. The problem is you read Tim LaHaye a little more than you read the Bible, right? Um, so most futurists would say when Jesus spoke of the tribulation, 
he was talking about a time in the future at the end of the world that either lasts seven years or three and a half years. Now, how many of you have ever heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard that, right? Now, if I were to say to you, where did they get seven years from? How many of you could answer that? You don't have to shout it out, but how many of you go, oh, yeah, I know why they have seven years. Raise your hand if you go, I know why. Okay, a few of you, okay? Now, I don't think it's that essential that you go, it's seven years or it's three and a half years. But it's in the future. Okay, it hasn't happened yet, this view. So those who hold to the seven-year view, I'm not going to take a lot of time on this, but there are whole books written on Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Very important passage. Now, for those of you that are here for the first time, unfortunately, you're, you're in the deep end with us, right? Christianity, this is, this is what the Bible calls the meat of the word. This isn't the basic milk of the doctrines of the faith, but as you grow for so. Please, if you leave here scratching your head going, oh, what is this, this crazy? Like, understand, it, you'll get there, but it's a little at a time, mostly pointing us, keep your mind on Christ and the gospel as his center. But Daniel had prayed that God would show him what's going to happen to the Jews in the future. And so God said in Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, the word weeks there, that's really important that we all take a look at that. The word weeks in Hebrew is just the word sevens. It doesn't have to be translated weeks. So literally in Hebrew it says 70 sevens are determined for your people. Okay? And in Leviticus, God spoke of weeks as seven-year periods. Sevens are seven-year periods. So futurists would say, okay, when God said 70 sevens have been declared, he's probably talking about 70 seven-year periods. Now, some of you need a calculator. Some of you can go, I know what seven times 70 is. It's 490 years, okay? Is there any way to verify that that might be what he meant? Well, in verse 25, he said, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Do the math. Seven and 62 is 69 weeks. 69 times 7 is 463 years. Now, historically, it's pretty well documented that the decree to restore Jerusalem was somewhere around 445 B.C. And Jesus came somewhere into Jerusalem around 30 B.C. So it fits well to say, hey, the first 69 7s that Daniel predicted were fulfilled Jesus came, Messiah the Prince came. But what about this last week? It says it will be built again, plasma moat, times of distress. But we're still missing one seven-year period. So notice verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. So most would say that's talking about Christ being killed. And then it says, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, who is, the, who is this prince to come? Well, we don't know for sure. And who are his people? But most likely, it's talking about the Romans, right? And they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary. But then, in verse 27, it says, He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now, who is he? Well, probably he, in its context, would be 
the prince to come, the people of the prince to come, which is usually identified with the Antichrist. So the way that Christians come up with a seven-year tribulation is they go, Daniel predicted that there would be this last seven-year period in this final week, there would be this guy who would make a covenant for seven years, and then he would break that covenant. Now, um, there are, you know, some questions there. You're like, well, wait a minute. If the first 69 weeks, that 463 years, was from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah was slain, why wouldn't the 70th week be right after that, right? Why would this seven-year period be postponed till thousands of years in the future? Many futurists would say that's because God was going to do something in between. He was going to build his church from the time that Christ was crucified and the Jews rejected him until God's work again with the Jews during the tribulation. There's the church age. But there's coming a time in the future, according to some futurists, where there will be a seven-year tribulation. Now, I, I would suggest that you hold that with at least some humility. I don't think it's helpful to go, the Bible's 100% sure on that. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian, right? There's a whole lot of Christians that don't agree that this is a future seven-year period. But again, this is where we want to engage and know what we believe. The Bible says, study to show yourself, proved unto God. Now, there are other Christians who go, no, when, when Jesus spoke about the tribulation, it's only three and a half years. You say, well, where'd they get that from? Does anybody know why they say that? Well, in Revelation, whenever you read about this terrible period of time in Revelation, it never uses the phrase seven years. It always uses terms for three and a half years. So notice, there's many examples. This is just one example in Revelation. As John is seeing this vision of stuff going on in the future, he says, don't measure the temple or be given to the nations. They will tread it underfoot, the holy city, for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And then the witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years, okay? So no big deal. This isn't something to die on a hill for. But if the tribulation's in the future, it's either going to be a seven-year period or a three-and-a-half-year period, okay? Well, what's it going to be like? Well, <clears throat> it's a specific future time when God pours out his wrath on the earth, okay? So it ain't going to be pretty, okay? Now, I personally hold to a futurist view. The primary reason for it is in Matthew 24, Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation you will see the sign of the Son of Man coming into heavens immediately after the tribulation. So I think the Bible teaches there will be a future tribulation, okay? And it'll be a terrible time when God is pouring out his wrath on the earth. As you read about it, it's bad. You know, a third of the earth killed, terrible, you know, disasters. It involves a series of judgments from God toward the world that are global in nature. So most futurists, and those of you who have never read the book of Revelation, Revelation 6 through 18 describes in three cycles a, a, a seven-set series of terrible judgments. Seven seals are open and terrible things happen. Seven trumpets sound and terrible things happen. Seven bowls are poured out on the earth of the wrath of God and terrible things happen. Okay? Now, <laughs> for those who take Revelation 6 through 18 as purely future, there's a, I have a problem with that because it was written to a first century church who was suffering 
and who was being asked to worship the emperor or die. So it had to have some meaning to them first before we go, hey, Revelation 6 to 18, first century church, this isn't for you. JK, don't, you know. Was it? And again, I don't want to mock, but I'm just going, it's a little bit, in my mind, it leaves a big gap to go, oh, it had nothing to do with the first century. So somehow we have to wrestle with the idea that when you read the book of Revelation, as with any book of the Bible, how would the first century readers have been reading it? Would they have been going, well, we don't have to worry about this. We're not going to be here, and that's thousands of years from now. So when the, when the book of Revelation described a beast who was demanding worship, I doubt they would have gone, oh, that's the Antichrist 2,000 years from now. They would have gone, that's Nero, or that's Domitian, or that's the emperor that's going to kill us if we don't worship him, okay? It also involves a special time when horrible evil on this earth will be driven by the devil. So as you're reading the book of Revelation, you'll meet two characters. One of them's called the Antichrist, or the Beast, and the other one's called the False Prophet. And these seem to be identified as individuals, right? In fact, Paul calls this Antichrist the man of lawlessness. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he says the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Now again, can't do an entire study of this in one day, but you're, everybody's going to come out of here with questions, like, well, what, who is this Antichrist? When's he going to be? How will I know him? Okay? But one of the things that we read in Revelation is this Antichrist is going to demand worship. And if you don't worship him, you're going to be killed. If you do worship him, you're going to go to hell. So, people will be faced with a very difficult choice to either repent Worship God and follow Jesus, and this will likely mean that you'll be killed, or follow evil and receive eternal hell as the consequence of this choice. For example, in Revelation, it says, everyone who receives the mark of the beast will be cast into the lake of fire and tormented day and night forever. So it's a sobering period of time on the earth. Now, at this point, you and I ought to be going, well, what about us? Are we going through it? Or are we not going to be here? I'm glad you asked. What is this rapture, right? It's almost comical when people make uninformed statements like this. The rapture is not even in the Bible. I go, well, it depends on what you mean by that. The word rapture is not in the Bible, but neither is the word trinity. Right? But you go, I don't believe in the Trinity because it's the words not in the Bible. Okay? So every Christian believes in the rapture because the word rapture simply means to be caught up. Okay? And all evangelicals agree on this that we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord. You have to believe this, it says it in the Bible. So when people say, I don't believe in the secret rapture or whatever, it's like, please. It's better to say, I have an opinion about when the rapture will take place, not, I don't believe the rapture is going to happen. So, the Bible says that there's going to come a day, you know, you figure out, this could be today, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel. On those verse 17, we talked about this last week with the souls of the beheaded, but it says, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, so... Do we believe in the rapture? Yeah, if you believe the Bible, you believe that we're going to be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. Now, does that mean we're going to be up there for eternity, floating around, playing harps? No. Does that mean we're going to be up there for seven years? Depends on your view of when the rapture takes place. So, 
This leads to a question. <clears throat> when will the rapture take place? Evangelical Christians, godly, Bible-believing Christians, do not agree on when the rapture will take place. In other words, I hold, and I hope you'll join me in holding to a belief in a future tribulation, but the question is, will we be caught up to meet the Lord before the tribulation? That's what some Christians hold. Some hold that will we be caught up during the tribulation. So we're going to go through some of it, and then we're caught up. Others hold to the position that, yeah, we're going to go through the tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation, then we're caught up to meet the Lord, getting us out of the way so we can come right back with him and he destroys his enemies. Okay? So you're like, well, what should I believe? Well, I'm not Jim Jones telling you to drink the Kool-Aid, right? You should believe what you think the Bible teaches. All right? Well, can you help me, Pastor? Can you give me some reasons why people believe this? Okay? So there are three major views. Now, again, I don't want to make it confusing. You don't have to learn big terms, but it's just a way to think of it. If you believe that the rapture takes place at the beginning, right? You're not going to, we're not going to be here. If this is a timeline, here's Calvary, Christ died. Here's the church age. If there's this great tribulation period at the end of the age before Christ comes back, if you believe that you're going to be taken up before that, we're not going to be here, and probably many of you have heard that. You know, it's just brushed off. You know, God won't beat up his bride and poop. You're not going to be here. Don't worry about it, okay? And I want you to think about that, okay? Is that clearly taught in the Bible, right? If you believe, as some do, that somewhere in the middle we will be taken up, then, then that's called a mid-tribulational view or a... a kind of sub-view of that, it's called the pre-wrath view, so somewhere in the middle of the tribulation that Christians go through and they're persecuted, but before God pours out wrath, Christians are taken up, and then there's a the post-trib, hey, the rapture is not, not beforehand, stop your wishful thinking, you know, boy, wouldn't that be pie in the sky, we're not going to be here, but show me that from the Bible, and you're like, are Christians allowed to disagree? Yes, on minor doctrines, right? If you disagree that Jesus is coming, now we have a problem. If you disagree on whether he comes before or after the, the tribulation, that's something we have to be open to and, and, and study the scriptures, okay? I have a position, but I don't think it's something that I'm going to say, hey, if you don't agree with me, you're dumb and you, you're not a Christian, okay? So, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just you'll notice the pre-trib, you're gone up, way before Christ comes back. Mid-trib, somewhere in the middle. Post-trib, and I'll point, you're, you're coming back after the trip, all right? So, what do we believe? Well, it depends. Not even all of our pastors have an exact similar view. Are you allowed to do that? Yeah, <laughs> relax. Some churches are so narrow. If you don't believe every detail that I believe, you're off the team. And I'm going, let's, let's be careful of that. In, in, in these minor doctrines, let's have some charity, even if we disagree with other views. All right, so <clears throat> there's an online study called the Biblical Studies Foundation. I don't agree with everything they had, but, but they had a helpful summary of support for the three views, okay? So I'm just going to go through this briefly, but you go, why would anybody believe we're going through the tribulation? Are they stupid, right? 
Well, they have a couple reasons. Number one, they go, hey, whenever the Bible speaks of the second coming of Jesus, there's not three comings of Jesus. There's not, he comes to earth, then he comes in the sky, and then he comes again to earth. They go, the Bible always speaks of one return of Christ. It's one event. The second coming and the rapture are the same event. He comes back, we meet him in the air, and we come back, okay? Well, that's dumb. Why would we meet him in the air? Well, because that's what people did back then. When a king came to your town, you didn't say, tell him when he gets here, I'll be done playing Nintendo. You went out to meet your king. Secondly, if you were staying in a town that was under siege from the enemy, and the king was coming to destroy the enemy, you would probably want to go out and join the king and get out of his way and join him so he could come back and destroy his enemies, okay? Secondly, there's only one resurrection of the saints mentioned in Revelation 20, okay? So if you hold to a pre-tribute, you're going, okay, there's a resurrection here, there's one here, there's one here. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but this is one of the reasons they hold that. Third, one of the arguments for the pre-tribute is that we won't be here. Read the book of Revelation. It never mentions the church in chapters 6 through 19. It never mentions the word church. See, we're not going to be here. But post-tribs say, hey, even though the word church isn't there, it talks about saints, followers of the Lamb. The church doesn't have to be removed from the tribulation to be protected during the tribulation. So when you hear people say, we're not going to be here, the word church isn't mentioned, you go, well, okay, that's possible, but it talks about saints, followers of the Lamb, believers, right? So Let's not put too much stock just because it doesn't use the word church, okay? Fourth, the pre-tribulational position, the idea that we're not going to go through it is recent, right? Until the 1600s, people are like, what are you talking about? So that ought to go, hmm, I should at least think about that, right? It wasn't until the 1600s that Christians finally really figured out we're not going to be here, okay? Doesn't make it right or wrong, but it's helpful to look back and say, what has the church held throughout history, okay? Now, what about mid-trib? Those who hold pre-wrath, and I'm not even going to go through this just for the sake of time, but, but, but and I'm not saying it's wrong, and, and um, you can, there's plenty of books. There's a book out there, three, four views of the rapture. So some of this stuff, you can go in more detail. I think this has some merit that maybe will be removed right before God pours out his wrath. Okay, and then the, the, the last one, I wanted to put a little more time on the first and the last one, the pre-trib view. This is what most of you probably have heard or been taught, not all of you, but you're like, I was told we're not going to be here. And I'm like, well, there's a difference between I was told and make sure that you can clearly explain from the Bible why you believe that. Okay, so why aren't we going to be here? Well, the first argument is because the 70th week of Daniel is for his people, not us. We're not going to be here. This is God dealing with the Jews. We're going to be up in heaven with him. Okay? The Gentile programs now, Jews are in the future. Not wrong, not, but is that conclusive? No. How about this one? While the church is mentioned many times in Revelation 2 and 3, it's never mentioned in chapters 4 through 19. And again, you go, well, does that prove it? After all, even though it doesn't say church, when you're reading Revelation 4 through 19, you see the, the saints being persecuted, the, the followers of the Lamb being martyred, okay? So I go, you know, that doesn't prove it. The third view is 
in Revelation 3.10, it says, I will keep you from the hour of tribulation coming on the whole earth. And I go, well, there's a couple problems with using that verse. Number one, that church was written, that letter was written to one church, the church of Philadelphia. And there was a tribulation coming on the whole earth at that time. Nero was, was killing everybody that he could. And Domitian, who, whichever emperor it was. So first of all, that was only to one church. And it was probably in a first century historical setting to go, that, that's really talking about all Christians of all time. I'm going, that's not real strong support. And then, one more, the Bible says the church is not appointed to wrath, right? And since the, the rapture is going to rescue us from God's wrath, after all, the Bible says Jesus is going to deliver us from the wrath to come. We're not going through it. We're not going to go through the wrath of God. And I go, okay, that's possible. But when Jesus and John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath to come, what was he talking about? When Jesus said, hey, if you don't repent, you better flee from the wrath to come. He was talking about hell, right? He wasn't talking about a short period of time in the future called the tribulation, right? So frequently when the Bible speaks of the wrath of God, it's talking about hell. In Revelation 5, it says this. Now that I've been justified by the blood of Jesus, I shall be delivered and rescued from the wrath of God through him. No one reads that verse and says, boy, I'm not going through the tribulation. So when the Bible says Christ will rescue us from the wrath to come, it might be talking about the tribulation, but it also might be talking about hell. So again, that's where you go, well, I was always told we won't go through the tribulation. Well, I'm okay with that, but, but what I want to suggest is if that's not absolute dogmatic fact and what's going to happen to christians if we do go through the tribulation god he didn't keep his word he told us we're not going to go through it what's i don't know if i can believe the bible right and what if god's gone i didn't tell you you're not going through the tribulation right so so this is why i think christians should be informed of more than one position Okay, I lean toward pre-trib, but not strongly. I think post-trib is a pretty, has a lot of good arguments. None of them are 100%, you don't, you know, no, don't ask me any questions. I got this. That's my opinion, okay? So, for some of you, this is like, man, you just undid a bunch of my categories, and that's not my intention. I'm not trying to upset your faith. I'm not trying to get you to doubt the Bible, but what I do want you to do is to go, this is not just pie in the sky stuff. As one preacher said to me once, and I wanted to smack him, even though he's a friend of mine, he goes, pre-mill, all-mill, I'm pan-mill. It'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> and I go, stop talking. <laughs> if God gave us the Bible, right, that's silly to just go, I don't care, it'll all pan out. I should at least try to think about it and read and say, Lord, what are you showing me, okay? Now, some of you already have your screensaver on your face. You're totally glazed over, you're like, Oh, what are you? I'm more confused than ever. And that wasn't my intention, right? But there are some things that you need to think about. Okay, so next week we're going to talk about the return of Christ, resurrections, and judgments. But I, wanna, I just want to press home a couple things to think about. This one thing is for certain. Jesus is coming again. He's going to destroy this heaven and earth. He's going to make a new heaven and earth. And only followers of Christ are going to be there. If you're not there, 
bad news. But what should I do with that? Go, oh, well, big deal. Well, first of all, whenever the, whenever the, the apostles spoke about the return of the Lord, it was practical. It wasn't like, hey, you're going to the next Bible conference? You know, I got my futuristic study Bible, and I figured out that the Antichrist has green eyes this year, you know, and I'm going to nitpick on every little thing. And if you don't agree with me, I'm like, that's not the purpose of prophecy. Prophecy is, number one, to call us to live a godly life. So look what Peter says. If you're a Christian, the day of the Lord's going to come like a thief. No thief leaves a note saying, I'm going to rob you tonight at 9 o'clock, so be ready. At an unannounced time, the day of the Lord will come in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, what's the application? So, but my car, my beach house, my cottage, my motorcycle, my golf clubs, my computer. And Peter goes, look, since all these things are to be destroyed, it's all going to burn up. Don't let your happiness and your life be built around your material possessions. You know what's going to last? People, souls. And as a result of that, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What matters is that we obey Christ, that we separate from the sin of this world, that we come out from among the world, that we take a stand for the truth of the gospel, that we live for the Lord, that we're not just like the world, and that we're not stockpiling material possessions to live the American dream because we're here on a mission for Christ, to be a disciple, to sacrifice and serve him. But it's not just to call us to godly living. Secondly, it's to compel us. Like, I should be busy for the Lord. So when, when Paul wrote this wonderful chapter in 1 Corinthians about the resurrection, he says, look, your life is not in vain. If there's no resurrection, just go do whatever you want. Eat, drink, and be merry, because you're going to die anyway. But if we're going to be raised from the dead, and I'm going to answer to Christ, then he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Remember last week when we saw in Revelation 3, Jesus said to the one church, your works are not complete. Blessed are the dead, they can rest from your works. And, and some of you are going, what do you mean works for Jesus? It was a novel idea that as a Christian, you're supposed to be actively serving the Lord. So, so just do an inventory right now and ask yourself, what am I doing for Christ? You know, you're like, well, my spirit is with the church all the time. No, what are you doing for Christ? Are you in any ministry? God didn't save you simply to sit on the sidelines. He saved us to serve. And if that serving means you set up chairs, then do it for Christ. If it means going to the prison to visit and, and minister, then do it for Christ. If it means um, raising your kids and, and teaching them the word and praying for the lost, do it. How much do you give? How much zeal do you have? I fear that many Christians, and it's so hard to, to not be lukewarm and just go, hey, I go to church on Sunday, I give God an hour. I'm like, really? Out of 168 hours in a week, we give them an hour on Sunday? Well, Pastor, I don't have time for that. Okay? Let's, let's, let's take that through its, to its end when I stand before Christ. I don't have time to serve you, Lord. Oh, oh, then that's different. I couldn't afford to give. Oh, really? Could you afford not to? So it challenges us as Christians to say, 
you know, rather than being just sitting around going, ooh, when's the next Bible conference? What are we doing for Christ? Who are you witnessing to? What small group are you engaged? Who are you helping? Who are you letting Jesus be your hand, work through your hands and feet to serve? Even if you just go, I can't disciple everybody, but there's one guy I say, hey, you want to go for coffee once a week? We'll start reading the Bible. Or I'll ask that single mom, mom next door, we'll ask that single mom, hey, you want to come over for, for a piece of pie and we'll have a cup of coffee? And how would you like to come to a Bible study? I mean, God is telling us, be immovable. And you're like, I've been doing that. I used to do that and I'm tired. We all get tired. Be abounding in the work of the Lord. Ask Tori, does she get tired being over in the Canary Islands where there's such disinterest? But you get up every day and you try to live for Christ. And you do what D.L. Moody said. I like what I'm doing better than what you're not doing. So what, what, isn't it great to have a church that's saying, you know, some of you are doing probably too much. Like dial it back, right? You've got a family and so forth. But some of you aren't doing anything. And I'm not mad at you, but I, I want you to be before Christ and get a full reward. All right, what else? Prophecy should comfort us. Many of you said, boy, last week's message was so helpful because I was thinking about grandma. I mean, last week, if you were here, we talked about where are dead people, right, who are Christians. I doubt there was a soul here that wasn't thinking about somebody, right? My brother, my spouse, my child. So Paul says, as, as we know, we're going to be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. But lastly, you don't want to miss this one. Prophecy is supposed to convert people, right? If you're here today and you're like, wait, if that's coming, what's going to happen to me? Well, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he says, I know you're getting beat up for Jesus. But look what he said is going to happen. It's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. This very verse, I was in a church one time in Arizona, the pastor read this very verse. Jesus is coming with mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who don't know God and those who do not obey the gospel. There was a fellow that was sitting a pew across from me that I had known in the community. He wasn't a Christian. He was visiting that day. When the pastor read that verse, he ran across the, from his pew to my pew. He goes, Tom, where is that verse? And I'm showing it to him. And, and he was awakened. And when the pastor said, now, if you'd like to trust Christ today, you come and stand and we'll pray together. That dude darted down the aisle, right? And so look what it says. To those who do not obey the gospel. How did I turn that off? To those who do not obey the gospel. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. I want you to think about this. If you don't respond to Christ's offer of salvation, repentance and faith, if you don't turn to the Lord and believe in him and ask him to forgive you and be willing to follow him, this is what you have in store. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power. I don't think that's what you want. But what is it that's keeping you from saying, well, then I should turn to the Lord and trust him and follow him. And I'll do it later. A lot of people in hell that were planning to do it later didn't get a chance. How do you know you're even going to want to do it later? Or I don't want to give up my stuff. Jesus said, what good is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Well, what will my family think if I tell them I don't believe what they believe? Well, I can tell you this. Your family's not going to be there determining your destiny. Jesus is. So can I encourage you? Even if you go, well, what will people think? I, they all thought I was a Christian, but I knew I wasn't. I didn't want to. Well, Jesus loves you. Jesus is not willing for any to perish. 
So I want to invite you, the best you know how, if God's speaking to you right there in your seat, say, Jesus, I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to be destroyed. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again. I want my kids to believe this. I want my family to believe this. I want to bring as many people to heaven as I can, Lord. Thank you for being my Savior. So let's close in prayer. If that's your decision and you're ready to follow Christ, right now, the best you know how, just tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died and rose again, that you're coming again, and I don't want to endure flaming fire. I want to be forgiven, and I'm ready to trust you. I'm ready to follow you. I, I want to be saved all as your gift to me. Come into my life, Lord, and forgive me and make me a follower. Before I close here, if that's your desire today, I want to pray for you, and I'm not going to drag this out, but if you want to be saved today and you say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Just raise your hand so I can see you. I want to give you a little book after. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. Anybody at all that says, Pastor, I want to follow Christ. I want to be saved. I want to obey the gospel. Just raise up your hand so I can see you. Okay? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for saving us. Help us, Lord, to take this good message to our loved ones, our children, and our friends. Thank you for the hope of eternal life. Thank you that Jesus is coming again and we're going to be with him forever. I pray for those who have questions or aren't ready to follow Christ, that you will work in their hearts and bless us this day as we look forward to the return of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Don't forget about the seminar on suicide at 11 o'clock. If you have questions, I'll be here afterwards.